ever so happy to be with you this morning. Yesterday, I was doing some cleanup in my yard, as needs, needs to be done periodically, and I was pulling some vines that had crept up into the oak trees, and I was just kind of cutting them and pulling them out, and so one of them was particularly stuck, and so I, I, was, I was kind of putting all my weight into it, you know, and it gave way, which was fine, uh, but as I started to kind of go forward, I hit a stump, and I fell uh, right on my left side. Now, for those of you who are in your 40s, you don't bounce quite the way that you used to. Um, so, you know, I thought I had broken a rib. I mean, literally, I was praying last night. First of all, I was praying that I would be able to be up here. Secondly, I was thinking, could I preach from a chair? Like, could I just sit in a chair with my leg up and be able to preach to you all this morning? But when I woke up this morning, I kind of like, you know, you'd like, wait a second. I think it's better. I think it's better. And then I got up, and, and things, are, or things are better than they were, all right? So uh, thankful for that. Did have some guys praying for me. The Lord answered those prayers. Apparently, he wanted me to be up here this morning. Um, we are finishing up John chapter 11, and then we will walk through John chapter 12, which has some really great uh, accounts from the life of Jesus. We got the the Mary anointing Jesus' feet with oil, and then the triumphal entry. Um, and then we are going to take a break after chapter 12 uh, for the summer. So we will leave off. Chapter 13 picks up with the, uh, the, uh, the Lord's Supper discourse, the upper room discourse. So we are going to take a break, and we're going to kind of split it up uh, with some of the other men here in the church, and we are going to go through the Psalms of ascent this summer. So starting uh, the week after Labor Day, whatever that is, uh, we are going to start with Psalm 120, and we will go to Psalm 132, and we're going to take one of those psalms each week over the summer. So if you would like to be preparing for that, start reading through those, uh, you can feel free to do that, and we'll look forward to that. And then uh, when we get to the fall, we will pick up, and we'll be headed you know, straight for the cross in John. Uh, for the, for the rest of the, of the year then. Uh, but for today, let's pick back up with where we left off. I'm going to just read. We're going to pick up at verse 28, and I would like to just read the rest of chapter 11. And I'll read it. You follow along. Remember, it's the Word of God that changes us. Um, you know, at my best, uh, I can't do anything. I, to, you know, I, I might sometimes can be more entertaining or more funny, but I, I can't change a heart. Only God can do that. So my, my goal here, just to be clear, and I think you guys are clear on this, is to explain the Word of God, to preach the Word of God, to proclaim the Word of God. But it is, it is the Word of God that changes our hearts by the Holy Spirit applying, us, applying it inside of us. So let me pick up in, in verse 28 as Jesus now approaches Mary in Bethany. When she said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Mary had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was, and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? 
And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the Pharisees, the chief priests and the Pharisees, gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, and there he stayed with his disciples. Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, and many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. They were looking for Jesus and saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? that he will not come to the feast at all? Now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should let them know so that they might arrest him. All right, so we're going to pick up where we left off last week. And last week, Jesus had just come into the town. The first five verses of the chapter set up the scene for us very succinctly, as we saw last week. Lazarus being a very well-to-do man, lived outside of Jerusalem in a town called Bethlehem, uh, Bethany, just on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And we know that he was a well-to-do man, and we'll talk about this in a minute, because he was buried in a tomb. So after the threats on Jesus' life, Jesus, uh, they were going to stone him, and they were going to arrest him at the end of chapter 10, Jesus has retreated down by Jordan. He is ministering there in relative safety, and he is having some success. Uh, God's word says that, he, that some were believing in him there. And while he's there, Mary and Martha send a message to Jesus to tell him that Lazarus is ill. In those first five verses, we see two things 
that really set apart Jesus' motivation for everything that he does in this passage. The first thing is that he loves Lazarus and Martha and Mary. And we talked about last week that in verse 4, when they say that the messenger comes, it says, he, he whom you love is sick. And it's a phileo love. It's a brotherly love. Lazarus, your friend, your good friend, your, your, your companion, he is sick, which tells us that Jesus had friends. Jesus, Jesus was a man who had friends. He cared for his friends. But then also in, chapter, in verse 5, it says, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, um, he loved them with an agape love. He loved them with God's love. And then so surprisingly, it says, so he waited. He waited two days. He's, he's motivated by love, but somehow out of his love, Jesus decides to wait. And we talked about last week. At this point in his ministry, not only had Jesus healed, but he had even healed from afar. He had healed the nobleman's son in Capernaum. All he had to say was, be healed, and Lazarus would be healed. Or he could have left right then, and he could have gone directly to Bethany, and he could have healed Lazarus in person. Instead, he waited two days. And then in verses 14 and 15, he says, Lazarus has died, and for, you sake, for your sake, I am glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Jesus, what do you mean you are glad that Lazarus has died? How can you be glad? Well, he's glad because what he's about to do is going to lead them to believe. And so what we see here in this passage is our Lord Jesus, and if we want to be like Jesus, we need to think about these things. What motivates our Lord? Our Lord is motivated by an entirely different set of priorities than we would be. Health and safety, his, his desire to, to avoid uh, being stoned even by the people in Jerusalem, take a back seat to love God's glory and his, the people that he loved having faith. And so if we say we follow Jesus' example, then these are the kind of things that we should meditate on in the person of Christ. What motivates us? When are we willing to sacrifice or to move out of our comfort zones in order to serve the Lord? So at the end of our time last week, like I've already said, we, we have Jesus arriving in, in Bethany. Um, this is a long chapter, as you know. It's 57 verses. Jesus has three encounters. By what I can tell, he's not back in Bethany very long. He sees Martha, he sees Mary, and then he raises Lazarus from the tomb. As is so often the case in these kinds of chapters in the Bible, the actual raising of Lazarus, I think it's only seven verses. So of a 57-verse chapter, we have seven verses about the thing that we're all excited about which says that John has a lot to say about all the other stuff, and most of it isn't about the miracle. So Mary and Martha would have been anxiously awaiting Jesus' arrival back in Bethany. They're waiting for him to come back. They're watching. Of course he's going to come. I, I, I said this last week, but I bet you one of them was watching the road and one of them was watching Lazarus. Like, either Jesus is going to come or he's going he's to heal him from afar. And so they're waiting, and they're watching. So Lazarus dies. And, and finally, when he starts walking into town, Martha runs out to meet him. 
And I hope you spent a little time with this conversation last week between Jesus and Martha, because there's so much in it that is counterintuitive. I, th- I thought about this this morning. If I was Jesus, and Martha came running out to me as I'm coming into town, I would say, stop your crying, take me to the tomb, I'm about to do something that you are not going to believe, right? I would be like, hey, don't worry about this. I, I got this. Like, but he doesn't do that. He, he stops and he engages her. He draws her out. Like we talked about last week, Jesus, for his own purposes, and remember, he loves Martha, but he stops and he talks to her for a few minutes, and, 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 and so Lazarus is really dead. Remember, this is really a scene of mourning. Don't, don't get caught up in the fact that you know how this is going to end. They've spent four days mourning. Lazarus is dead, and Martha exhibits some faith. She says, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would not have died. I know you could have done this. I don't understand. I don't understand why you didn't come. And then she acknowledges. She says, I know you have a special relationship with God. I know anything that you ask, God would have done for you. But Jesus uses this mourning to strengthen her faith, to draw out her faith. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. Martha, I gotta take you further. I gotta take you further than just, if I had been here, he wouldn't have died, and I can ask God, and God will do things for me. I need to take you further, because Martha, what you need to understand from this experience is that I am the resurrection and the life. Like, I'm not just asking for it. I I am the person who is life. And then she makes that startling confession. And I'm starting here again. I'm, I'm, I'm emphasizing this point again this morning because I think it's so important. Faith is this work that God does in a human heart. In, in Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks Peter, who, who do people say that I am? And he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And, and Jesus says, Jesus rejoices because he says, you didn't just come up with that on your own. But God the Father revealed that to you. And and Jesus, I, I believe that Jesus thinks the same thing about Martha's confession. Praise God. Like, the angels in heaven rejoiced when she made that confession in the depths of her sorrow. Y'all, these people, Martha and Peter, are good first century Jews. They are not superstitious, they're not giving to myths, and they are really confessing that the person, the man standing in front of them is the Messiah. Once again, Lazarus is still dead. This would be an amazing confession if Jesus had asked her about this after Lazarus had come from the dead. But he, he draws this out of her before he does the miracle. All right, let's just keep moving then. Mary. So Mary comes out to meet Jesus. Uh, Martha had already run out. Martha is the, the more forward one of the two. She runs out to meet Jesus. Mary remains in the house, but she comes later. So Martha comes back, says the teacher is here. Mary comes out, and John explicitly says that the crowd of mourners who are in the house come out 
with her. Now, we have to just pause from the flow of the story for just a minute. That crowd is very important. We said last week, this is, this is a miracle in which Jesus seems to deliberately make it more glorious than it otherwise would have been. Like, he could have just come and healed Lazarus. He could have just come and raised Lazarus, but he's drawing a crowd. So all those mourners who have come to mourn with Martha and Mary from Jerusalem, they are coming now with Mary as she goes out to meet Jesus. And all of these people, by the way, are going to see this miracle. And as we read at the end of the chapter, these are the ones who are going to be saying, is Jesus coming for the Passover? Is, is he coming? And, and to all of those people are going to be the ones that generate the crowd that is going to be there for the triumphal entry. All right? We'll get there. Pause. Hang on to that. We'll talk about that in a couple of weeks. I want you to notice that Jesus responds very different to Mary. All right? I've thought a lot about this. So Mary and Martha say the exact same thing. They both say, Lord, if you had only been here, my brother would, have, would not have died. So what's the difference? Why does Jesus press Martha into a, a, a stronger, greater, more clear confession of faith, but he just weeps with Mary? And I believe that the reason is that Mary comes and falls on her feet before Jesus. I, I think that's the reason. I think that Jesus, I think that Mary already has a more fully formed faith as she comes to him and as she collapses. And so she doesn't need to be pressed right now. And I want you guys to see this because I think this is important. In both cases, Jesus is compassionate, okay? It's not that he only shows compassion to Mary, but he doesn't really show compassion to Martha. In both places, Jesus, in his godness, recognizes what these two women need, and he responds to it, all right? So in this case, Jesus is deeply moved by Mary's grief. And I, I don't think we can possibly overestimate how important this passage is to see the humanity of Jesus Christ. I think this is so important. The word here is groaned. It is, it is, it's a difficult word, but Jesus expresses the highest level of grief as Mary is bowing before him, weeping. And then it says, uh, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He shed tears. So Jesus is groaning inside. He's deeply troubled. He weeps as Mary bows before him, crying. You guys, you have to wonder, why is he crying? Why is he crying? Jesus knows what he's going to do. Jesus has known for four days that he is going to show up in Bethany and he is going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And, and I don't believe for a second that Jesus is play-acting in any of this. He is not just putting on a show. Why is he groaning and shedding tears? Jesus wept because better than any man who ever lived, he understood the effects that sin and death have on the human race. These are dear friends, and they are suffering. Isaiah prophesied that Jesus 
would be a man of sorrows. And so Jesus is deeply moved by the human experience with sin and death. You guys, Jesus hates the effects of sin and death, and so should we. Y'all, we do. We live in a culture that is anesthetized to some extent to death. We are, we are entertained by death being portrayed for us on TV. We are, we are making it easy to kill the youngest among us and the oldest among us because, you know, that they're just kind of hard to deal with. And yet we are all surrounded by people who are dying. Sin brought death and suffering to the human race, and every day people die in their sins. And that made Jesus weep. And we too ought to be deeply troubled. I don't know if you've thought of this, but as I was thinking through these things this week, I, I thought of this. I thought, is there tension here? All right, just bear with me. It's, it's, is, is John being inconsistent? Because on the one hand, we saw Jesus, uh, you know, I am glad. Lazarus is dead, and I'm glad because you're going to be strengthened in your faith. And on the other hand here, now we find Jesus weeping and deeply troubled at the fact that Mary is crying in front of him. Well, it turns out that it is possible for us as the people of God to rejoice at things that are true and still grieve deeply about the effects of sin and death. When Jesus said that he came to to give us abundant life, he didn't mean that from from the moment we get saved forward that we're all just going to be like happy and and jumping around and joyful and that there's never going to be anything hard and there's never going to be anything sad. That is not what Jesus meant at all. But he did mean that even in the midst of our suffering, we could find deep contentment and even joy because we know that the Lord will redeem our sorrow that the clouds will break and the light will dawn. I've been rereading George Mueller's autobiography. It's called The Autobiography of George Mueller. Uh, chapter 7, entries from June 25th and June 26th, 1835. June 25th. Our little boy is so ill that I have no hope of his recovery. June 26th. My prayer last evening was that God would support my dear wife under the trial. Two hours later, the little one went home to be with the Lord. I fully realize that the dear infant is much better off with Jesus than with us, and when I weep, I weep with joy. I think that's an illustration of the same kind of thing that Jesus is experiencing here. And this this is the Christian perspective on death. And only a person who knows the real Jesus could say something like that. It is possible to know the truth and rejoice in the truth and yet still mourn and weep about the effects that sin and death have on our world. As we approach the tomb of Lazarus, I need to pause for just a moment and talk about Jewish burial customs because I think they'll help us understand what's going on here a little bit more. So the poor and the stranger were only buried in unmarked graves, pits, fields. But rich people were buried in tombs, all right? So that's why we know that Lazarus was a rich man. And by the way, we only know about burials of rich people because all the poor people 
there's, there's no evidence of, of their burial. Most of what we know comes from those affluent burials, and so what you'll find is you would find a, a rock um, quarry that has been dug out of a hill, either like near the city walls, just outside of the city. So after death, a body, they had to bury it by, by, by uh, sundown, uh, so the body would be cleaned and then wrapped in, in pieces of cloth, and then spices would be applied to it. And the spices were very much because they didn't embalm like the Egyptians, and the spices were because, as we see in the passage, there was concern uh, that the, the, the body would begin to stink, all right? And so then there would be kind of a lengthy mourning time where, and rich people would hire professional mourners to come and to mourn, to weep, and to wail. They might even have some musicians who would come uh, for the, the, the funeral. And it was cu customary for this to go up to 90 days. I'm sorry, 30 days. They would be there for up to 30 days. And, and, and from time to time, they might even go into the tomb and re-anoint the, uh, the body with spices, and they wanted to make sure that the body hadn't been buried prematurely and that somebody hadn't woken up in there. Okay, so that would be why they would sort of take this, this long time. I have a picture. Uh, so this is actually, it's, it doesn't have any... Um, I took this picture. Um, so this, this is on a road uh, in, this is, this is in uh, northern Israel. This is between uh, Mount Carmel and Nazareth. And you're kind of coming down through the hills. And so when they were digging this road, they found uh, this tomb. And I'm sorry about the little thing, but you can't go all the way across there. So you can see there, the tomb has been hollowed out in just the side of the rock there. And then you see that big um, round stone that can just be rolled back and forth um, across the door, all right? So that's, that's probably what Jesus' tomb looked like. I always, when I was growing up, I always pictured these like big, like a big boulder, you know, because the stone is in front, like this big boulder and you gotta push it over. But it, would, it was round like that and it came over the door of the tomb. Once you were inside the tomb then, they were like carved in the walls, almost like little bunks. So there might be three high and they would be going back and you would take the body and you would lay it uh, on one of those ledges. You would lay it there wrapped and you would roll the stone back uh, across. In the back of the tomb then, there would be another hole and about a year later, this seems very bizarre to us, but they would come, somebody would come and they would collect the bones from that shelf and they would put the bones then into that pit in the back of the tomb that they had dug out back there. For a very short time, just before the fall of Jerusalem, it seems that the Jews started to put together these bone boxes. Us, us, yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, but they would, they would put the bones into these boxes, and then the box would be stored back in the back of the tomb, okay? So Lazarus, Jesus, this, this is what the tomb was like. And so outside would be this, this large tomb. Jesus comes up, and he says... Where is the tomb? Where have you laid him? All right? Okay. I just want to say, I don't think that Jesus, I don't think that Jesus played games. I don't believe he played games. All right? I don't think that he's saying, I don't know where he's buried. I just want to see if you know where he's buried. All right? I think he really doesn't know where he's buried. All right? So, 
side note on the person of Jesus Christ, I believe that this is one of the evidences that Jesus really did set aside his divine attributes voluntarily so that he could live the life that we and I, you and I live. Jesus, in his servant mindset, did not avail himself of his omniscience. And in this case, he really doesn't know where the tomb is, all right? So they go to the tomb. Uh, Jesus says, take away the stone, roll the stone away. Martha says, actually in the King James, it says that she said, Lord, after 40 days, he stinketh. There's going to be an odor. And Jesus feels free to admonish Martha one more time. Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? And by the way, I think this is a little bit of an act of faith here for Martha. I think this is another act of faith because think about this. I mean, she's got to open that tomb. I, like, that's not appealing, you know? I mean, she's basically saying, Jesus, really? Like, he's been dead for four days. He's, he's well into the decomposition process. I, I don't want to open that tomb. But Jesus says, did I not tell you? If you believe, you'll see the glory of God. And so she acts in obedience. She does, does what Jesus says. So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I knew that you always hear me, but I said this account on the people standing around so that they might believe that you sent me. Jesus addresses God as Father, just as he told his disciples to do. He offers a prayer of thanksgiving. It's interesting. He says, I, I thank you that you've already heard me. Apparently, at some point, Jesus has already prayed that Lazarus would be healed. And, and you know, I have a lot of questions about this passage, but I have a question, too. At what point did Lazarus get healed? At what point did he come back to life? Because all Jesus says is, Lazarus, come on out. You know, I mean... Has the process already begun in that tomb while Jesus is praying his prayer of thanksgiving here? Uh, this is an illustration, I think, of what we saw in, in John 5, where Jesus says, I only do what I see the Father doing. So he's expressing his dependence here, and then he says, I'm praying so that the people around me might believe. I'm praying so that they might know that you're about to do something really, really amazing. I think it's worth reminding ourselves of John 5 at this point. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Brothers and sisters, this is a, a down payment on the fact that one day Jesus is not going to specify. He's just going to say, come out, and all of us are going to walk out of that tomb if we have put our trust in him. This is, this is how it's going to work. Jesus Christ has the authority to speak, and the dead are raised. And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips, and his face wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. You guys, it had been four days. And Jesus, Jesus had to recreate life. I, I did a little reading. I was going to share it with you, and I decided not to. But I, I did a little reading about the, the process of decomposition this week. And, I mean, I got to tell you, just take my word for it. After four days, that body is dead. 
It is dead. Like, things are happening that are irreversible. Jesus had to turn a, a dead, decaying piece of matter into something that was alive again. Lazarus is wrapped from head to toe. I mean, I don't know how he got, I don't know how he got off of the ledge. I don't, most likely he had to kind of throw, throw himself over because it actually says that when he appeared at the opening of the tomb, he appeared there bound, hand and foot. I can't hop. I was going to hop. I can't hop today. But just picture me hopping, all bound up. You know, he's, he's, he is hopping to the front of the tomb. And Jesus has to say, unbind him. I mean, I don't know what people are doing around there, but I'm imagining a lot of people are like, like, I don't want to touch that. Like, what if that's a ghost? No, unbind him. Uh, one commentator made this great observation. You know, some of those very mourners may have been the ones who wrapped that body. And so Jesus is saying, no, you go. Go and unwrap him. Find out. He's really alive. And that's it. That's all we get, folks. I, I have so many questions. This is all we are told. We, you know, we sort of reverently back away from Mary and Martha and Lazarus at that point. Tradition, by the way, just tradition. Tradition says that he lived for 30 years and was kind of miserable for the rest of his life. That is only tradition. What was this like for Lazarus? You know, where was he? Was he up in paradise? And, you know, did he sort of start hearing the voice saying, come back? What was Mary and Martha's reaction? Screaming, hugging, crying. Did he just come back and resume normal life? Like, you know, do you, do you have an excuse for being dead at your job? Do you just get to come and take it back? Did he just pick up where he left off? Why does John tell us so tantalizingly little? And I think it's because this story isn't about Lazarus, and it isn't about Martha, and it isn't about Mary, and it isn't about me, and it isn't about you. This is a story about the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so John, inspired by the Holy Spirit, has told us exactly what we need to know for Jesus' glory to be on display. So as is so often the case, John ends the chapter by telling about the reactions to the miracle. Verse 45 and 46, many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. So that's good. Many believed. John mentions again specifically those who had come to comfort Mary. So we see that crowd there, that crowd of mourners. They were presented with clear evidence as to who Jesus is, and they bought it. God sovereignly opened their eyes. They were no longer spiritually blind. On the other hand, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus has done. I, I quote J.C. Ryle here, instead of being softened, convinced they were hardened and enraged. They were vexed to see even more unanswerable proofs that Jesus was the Christ and irritated to feel that their own unbelief was more than ever inexcusable. They therefore hurried off to the Pharisees to report what they had seen and to point out the progress that the Lord was making in the immediate neighborhood of Jerusalem. Once again, 
I used to always have teenagers tell me, if I could just see a miracle, if I could just see a miracle, I would believe. If I could just see something supernatural, that is not true. Clearly, you can see the supernatural, you can see real miracles, you can see someone walk out of a tomb after four days and not believe. And then we have the Pharisees. And what follows is just an absolutely stunning statement of willful unbelief. Verse 47, so the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council, so they had to call a quick meeting, and they said, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And what we have here, again, is just the straightforward admission on the part of the Pharisees. Okay, there's no question. He's doing miraculous things. He's doing supernatural things, and we don't believe it. We don't believe he is who he claims to be. So just the willful rejection of what he is doing, they say in verse 48, let it go on like this. Everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away our place and our nation. They're they're hysterical. If we don't do something, the Romans are going to come and take away our nation. Jesus is going to ruin our good situation that we have here if we don't do something. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not the whole nation, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. And I think Caiaphas He's not saying, you know, you guys are, you guys are idiots. He, he's saying, no, you are proposing that we need to do something about Jesus. I am proposing a, a like, once-for-all solution here. He simply means this man must die for the good of the nation. It would be a public benefit if we kill him, a political Expediency, And he is, he is diabolical here. He is, he is demonic. He is only concerned for himself and his position. So like, like politicians today, he has conceived of what would be best for his position, and he is presenting it as the good of the nation to kill Jesus. Here's something I want done. Therefore, let's do it for the good of the nation. And John says he doesn't even know what he's saying. But God is using him to actually prophesy. God is using a wicked man to accomplish his purposes. And so the Caiaphas, the high priest that year, prophesies about Jesus' death and his death for the Jewish nation and for every nation. Jesus leaves town, John 11, 54. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but went from there to the region near the wilderness to a town called Ephraim, where he stayed, from, stayed with the disciples. Jesus will leave Ephraim, and he will begin his walk down through Jericho and up when he begins to come back to Jerusalem for the triumphal entry. So we are days away. And then as I already pointed out, he has created a buzz. Verses 55 and 57 says that the people are wondering, is he going to come for the Passover? And I think that Jesus has accomplished exactly what he intends to do. I just want to close with verse 48, and we'll be done. I know we've covered a lot of ground this morning. 
If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come away, will come and take away our place in our nation. And this, I think, is just a clear statement about what's at stake in following Jesus. I think they, like Caiaphas, don't understand how true what they're saying is. If we let Jesus have his way, we're going to lose everything. And the same is true for you and I. That is the issue. If we follow Jesus, we will lose our lives. When I followed Christ, I said, there is no more David Cleland apart from Christ. That David is dead. All the things I wanted, all the things I planned, they are now subject to him. I lost my life. I trust him as I lose it. And Jesus says, In Mark 8, he says, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake and the gospels will save it. That's why Jesus says, count the cost. The the Pharisees are right. If they accept Jesus, they will, in fact, lose everything. But they're not really losing anything. I mean, think about this. The the Pharisees hang on to what they thought they had, and within 40 years, Jerusalem is gone, the priestly system is gone, the temple is gone. It's all gone. But the people who understood Jesus and believed in him, though that system is gone, though they've lost everything, they've gained everything because they have followed Christ. They have the abundant life that he has promised. So that's where we'll leave it this morning. We'll leave it with that that thought right there. Will you try to save your life? It's true. It'll cost you everything. And yet, you don't have anything to lose. Because in following Christ, we gain all that he has promised. Let me pray. Father, thank you. It's a wonderful story. We learn so many, many things about the person of your son, Jesus Christ, about his humanity, about his heart, that he weeps, that he groans. Your word says that he lives even now to make intercession on our behalf. He sees us here. He sees our hurts, our sufferings. He prays in ways that we don't even understand. And so we thank you for our great high priest who was tempted and tried as we are yet without sin. We thank you that he is the Lord of life, that he is the one who will speak and the dead will be raised. And Father, I pray that there are people in here this morning who would believe that for the first time and that they would find that what they thought they were losing was nothing and that they are gaining life in Jesus Christ. And I ask this in in Christ's name. Amen.